The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. All right. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab a hold of them and let's open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 22. Uh, We just had a psalm read over us, which was actually written out of this text from 1 Samuel 22 that we will be in. So Kyle uh, didn't have to read names. He just got to read the psalm. Uh, But uh, I want you to spend some time with me in 1 Samuel 22. Uh, There are hardback black Bibles under every chair if you want to use one of those. That's on page 245. Feel free to open a phone or a tablet to 1 Samuel chapter 22. We've been walking through 1 Samuel for like three years. That's not an exaggeration, okay? But uh, we only do it in the spring, okay? So we'll, we only do it in the spring and then we do other things uh, in the summer and in the fall. But yes, 1 Samuel chapter 22 is where we're gonna be. As you're getting to, to 1 Samuel 22, let me, let me share this. On the night of October 30th, 1938, October 30th, 1938, legions of people uh, tuned the dial of their radios to a chilling live CBS broadcast reporting from the town of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, just a short trek from Manhattan. And the report that everyone was listening to that evening was that Professor Richard Pearson, while standing watch at Princeton's observatory, had uh, witnessed a rare meteor shower. And uh, this professor rushed to the scene to investigate, but upon arrival, instead of debris and space rock, he found a large metal cylinder in the field, still steaming and making odd scraping noises from the inside of its shell. As, that, uh, as reporters showed up on the scene, first responders showed up on the, rec- on the scene, and other onlookers examined this crash site, the cylinder began to open. Seconds later, the report on the radio announced America's worst fear had come to light. Aliens had landed on the eastern seaboard. The, the, the report went on that the National Guard was called in. Bells began to ring to warn people to evacuate the island of Manhattan. And then word came in that alien landfalls happened, were happening in Chicago and then St. Louis and all across the United States. And uh, in light of this broadcast, pandemonium broke out in the streets of the United States. People fled their homes in terror. They took refuge in churches. Pregnant women went into labor early. And actually, there was a whole group of people that committed mass suicide that night. Looting broke out in the streets, and men even got their guns out to prepare to make a final stand against these aliens. And everything that I just told you is completely true. All of that actually happened. But the next day, people read this uh, headline in their uh, daily newspaper, which was quite sobering. The New York Daily News headline read this on October 31st, 1938. Fake radio war stirs terror through U.S., You see, um, what what had happened is a 23-year-old actor and director named Orson Welles, you may have heard of him, Orson Welles had bought the rights to a novel called The War of the Worlds, and he had formatted it into an hour-long, lifelike radio drama, and 
When people tuned into their radios, they didn't realize it was fiction. It wasn't fiction to their minds. And in the 1930s American psyche, being right on the verge of a a war with Germany and still kind of reeling in recovery from the Great Depression, well, anxiety was kind of at an all-time high in that world, and people freaked out. They freaked out. Now, why do I start with this story today? Why do I share this story? Well, it's a way to introduce our text in 1 Samuel 22, because I want to recognize what are very real-life implications of believing lies rather than believing the truth. Okay, we have this fictional radio broadcast, and while it wasn't a lie per se, I mean, it was fiction, right? While it wasn't a lie, people believed that it was true and it had devastating effects. And this is what we're gonna see in our text today, okay? I'm calling today's sermon, Two Lies and a Truth. Uh, You know the game, Two Truths and a Lie? That's the clever take, Two Lies and a truth, two lies and a truth. We're going to see two terrible, I mean, just terrible consequences of believing lies. And we're going to see one beautiful consequence of believing the truth. That's what we're going to see in our text today. So let me set this up with the context for the last few chapters of 1 Samuel, just in case you're fresh with us. In chapter 17, David killed Goliath the most famous story in all of the Bible. David kills Goliath, the Philistine giant. He wins fame and fortune, but King Saul, the king of Israel at this time, becomes envious of David, and that envy overtakes him to the point where he wants David dead. He wants David dead. He wants to kill David. So David runs from Saul. He is on the run. And last week in chapters 21 and the beginning of 22, we saw him running all over the place. It was kind of like a montage of David running last week. Okay, he ran to the tabernacle to see the priests. He ran to the Philistines and then had to act like a madman. He ran even to the Moabites to find protection for his family. And that's where we pick up. He's on the run from the murderous Saul. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 22. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 6. Verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered. And the men who were with him, and the men who were with him, Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. So, so what that says is that Saul has found out where, what David's been up to. All of that travel from last week, he's figured this out. And Saul, the text says, is in Gibeah, which is where Saul's from. He is Saul of Gibeah, so he's in his hometown. And then the text tells us that he had his spear in his hand, which frightens no one. Because this dude couldn't hit anything with that spear, right? He missed David three times, and he tried to kill his own son with it and missed him. Four strikes for this guy. He needs, like, at close range some practice or something with that thing. It's just worthless at this point. But actually, that spear, the reason why Saul's holding that spear is that that spear symbolizes his kingship. It symbolizes his kingly status. It's almost like a scepter or something like that. And so really what he's doing by holding that spear, this is a flex, 
This is Saul flexing. He's desperately trying to hold on to his kingly authority. But as we see, it's not going to work out. Look at verse 7. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? That's what he says. So Saul uses a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical question with his servants, and he calls them the people of Benjamin. He calls them Benjamites, okay? Now, you have to remember, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, the 12 tribes of Israel, Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. Therefore, he has surrounded himself with servants and leaders from his own tribe. Now, Saul's a Benjamite. You remember what tribe David was from? David is from the tribe of Judah. His offspring will be known as the lion from the tribe of Judah, right? You remember this, okay? So Saul says, do you really think that Judite is going to honor you Benjamites and give you land and give you posts if he's made king? You really think that's going to happen? But what we're seeing here in that rhetorical question is a couple of things. First, Saul's own countrymen, Benjamites, are siding with David now. He's trying to convince them not to take David's side. He's losing hold of his own people. But number two, second, this very thing was spoken about. If you remember a couple years ago, back at the beginning of this book, the elders of Israel go to the prophet Samuel and they demand a king. We want a king so that we could be like every other nation. We don't want God as our king. We want a human king. And then God, through the prophet Samuel, warns the people of this in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And he says this. I'll put this on the screen. If you, if you ask for a king, he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. So this is what kings did. Saul had done this, right? He's surrounded by Benjamites. And he's saying, Samuel said this would happen. I did this. You really think David's going to do something different? And what God tried to warn them about before they demanded a king, it's kind of starting to come around and nip them in the bud. But alas, it's too late at this point. Now, Saul is trying his very best to keep his servants from aligning with David. That's what he's trying to do here. And also, note that from now on, Saul will not call David by his name. From here on out, he will only call him the son of Jesse. He, he, he's needing to dehumanize David, to depersonalize David in order to justify what he's doing. Will that son of Jesse give you posts and land and do all these things if he's made king? That's his rhetorical question. All right, here we go, verse eight. He says, that all of you have conspired against me. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. 
None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. See, Saul's suspicion now is is gaining some ground. It's becoming extreme. All of you have conspired against me. That's what he's saying. All of you, uh, he's accusing his tribesmen of conspiracy. Did you see? He's, he's, he's uh, uh, accusing his son, Jonathan, of conspiracy. You're stirring up the son of David or son of Jesse against me. Now, here's the question. Is that true or is that a lie? Is it true or is it a lie? It's a lie. It's a lie. We have no evidence of some grand conspiracy by these men to take Saul out, let alone some, that, that David is somehow like lying in wait, ready to get him or something like that. There's no indication of that at all. And so here I'll make my first point. Believing lies will lead to isolation. Believing lies it isolates you. And now hear me, if you're paranoid or suspicious, man, it just skews how you see everything else in life. Everyone's against me. Hear the language that he says? Everyone's against me. Nobody told me, right? No, no, no one's sorry for me. It's me, it's me, it's me. That's all that Saul cares about at this point but it's not rooted in truth. It's rooted in a lie. It isolates him. And, and what happens is we, when we start believing even lies, when we start living out of lies, it causes us to be isolated, even from those who are closest to us, from our own family, from our own tribe. Now, this is, we're going to see this play out. Look at verse 9. It gets wild. Then answered Doeg the Edomite. Okay, so here Doeg is back. Remember Doeg from last week? Doeg was uh, present last week when David first fled to Nob, to the priest, to the tabernacle. And then Abimelech gives him the bread and the sword. Do you remember this story? And so Doeg, Doeg was an Edomite, okay? Edomites are not Israelites. They are Edomites, Okay. Hence the name. Okay, uh, uh, the Edomites are enemies of Israel. Edom is an enemy of Israel. And Doeg may have become a servant of Saul, a servant of the king of Israel, after Saul's victory over uh, Edom back in chapter 14. So there was a victory of Israel over Edom under the oversight of Saul. So he may have picked up Doeg at that point. But here's what's interesting. Saul can't get any of his kinsmen to help him. In his lie, in this conspiracy he's believing, he can't get anybody close to him to help, only a foreigner. And so Doeg, the Edomite, answers, and he says, uh, who, who stood by the servants of Saul, he says this in verse nine, I saw the son of Jesse come to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him possessions and uh, provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So Doeg is a tattletale. He tells on David. That's what he does. 
He tells on the son of Jesse. Notice he uses the word, the son of Jesse. He's again, just reinforcing some of what uh, Saul is feeling. And then note, as he brings this in, how he kind of ramps things up to feed Saul's conspiracy theory. He prayed for him. He went to the Lord, inquired on on behalf of the Lord for him. He gave him provisions and he gave him the sword of Goliath. Now, those words provoke Saul's suspicion. The the priest was aiding David in military preparations against him. They reinforce, they even exacerbate the lies that Saul is now believing. Now, real quick, the things that Doeg says, are they facts? Are they facts? Are they factual? Yeah, they are. They are factual. Now, here's the other question. But are they true? Now, you better know this. There's a difference between facts and truth. This one might be worth the whole price of admission today. There's a difference between facts and truth. Okay, David, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Doeg is lying to Saul using facts. Follow me here. Doeg states what he saw. It really happened. It really happened. He gave him the bread. He prayed for him. He gave him the sword. Those are facts. But the way that Doeg communicates that to Saul, he puts his own spin on it to make it look like an intentionally treacherous act of conspiracy. He knows what he's doing there. Facts, facts, like, like real factual data plus the wrong spin is an equal to a falsehood. It's equal to falsity. In reality, uh, we, we saw similar things last week. Like Abimelech, sh- uh, David shows up to Abimelech and says that Abimelech was trembling with fear. He's not, he's not standing up trying to make some sort of case against Saul. He's not intentionally siding with David, trying to create some grand conspiracy against Saul. He's just there. He's trembling with fear. David tells a lie. And then Ahimelech, the priest, gives him these things. See, there's a difference between facts and truth. Because you can know the facts and still miss the truth. This is why this is so hard. Because we tend to equate facts and truth. But facts are, they're just data. Facts are points of data. Truth is the interpretation of that data. And church, these are the types of lies that prey on God's people. These are the types of lies that if it was just like, hey, you know what, aliens, it'd feel a lot easier to just dismiss it because it's not rooted in fact. But hear me, the best lies are, are, are the, they're lies because they're not unfactual, but they certainly aren't truth. The most effective lies are the ones that are mostly factual. Hear hear me. They're going to sound right. Okay, to Saul, everything Doeg said sounded right. They're going to feel right. They're going to promise you something. 
Here's an example. Hey, you deserve to be happy. And you haven't been happy in your marriage in years. Maybe they're not the right fit for you. It happens. You were too young when you got married. If you were to divorce, there's bound to be someone else who would be a better fit for you and would ultimately make you happy. And we hear it and it's some, it's like shrouded with facts. You might not be happy. You might not be great fit. You might have been young and dumb. But we believe the lie. Shrouded in facts. And so here's the truth, church. We are in a war between lies and truth. We're in a war between lies and truth. And and hear me, the rest of the world knows this. So you got to be careful who you listen to. You got to be careful to what kind of news or or social media you consume because they know it. Man, if you're already a bit suspicious or paranoid, there are some people and there are some companies who will feed that. There's dough eggs out there that will stoke the fuel of that fire, spinning maybe even facts to help feed that delusion. Believing lies. It's a dangerous place. It's a dangerous place. It leads to isolation. We're going to see this play out. Look at verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. Verse 12, and Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? You see, the conspiracy has now been solidified in Saul completely. He rehashes exactly what Doeg told him. His delusion is that everyone is against him and they, those delusions have now matured to the point where he thinks, hey, David's lying in wait against me. My life is now at stake because of that son of Jesse. But then also note that he, has, uh, he summons Ahimelech, a the priest, who actually helped David out. But then it also says that he assembles all of his father's house. That means all of the priestly house. All the priests from his family were there. Ahimelech was the son of Ahitub. Is that, that's what we read. Ahitub was the son of Phineas. And if you remember, Phineas was the sketchy son of Eli. And we read about him at the beginning of this book as well. The very priest from the beginning of 1 Samuel. So he assembles all of the priests from Eli's house. And here's what happens in verse 14. Then Ahimelech answered the king, 
and among all of your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. So Ahimelech is like trying to reason with Saul here. He's, he's trying to unwind the conspiracy theory of lies. Like he's trying so hard to share truth with this man. David is faithful to you. David is your son-in-law. He's the captain of your guard. Like he is honored in your house. What are you doing is what he's saying. What are you doing? Saul won't have it. Verse 16. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. So the lies that Saul has believed, that Doeg has fueled, they're now leading to the murder of not only Ahimelech, but the entire priestly family from Nob, his father's house. Now, verse 17. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Saul commands his servants, those Benjamites, that he was trying to convince earlier, those kinsmen, those closest to him, his, his guard, his personal bodyguard, to kill the priests of the Lord, but they refuse. They outright refuse a direct command from their king, from their kinsmen, from their commander. To do so amounts to a death sentence for themselves. But they say no. They say no. Again, just the isolation. Look at verse 18. Then the king said to Doeg, thank you, Doeg. Man, this guy, I'm serious. If you name your kid Doeg, he's out, all right? Uh, And the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod, And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Let's make our second point. Believing lies will lead to devastation. It's isolating, but it will lead to devastation. This is devastating what happens. Doeg is the only one with a conscience seared dark enough, crispy black enough to kill 85 priests. And what's more, we just read, he ends up going to Nob, to the priestly city of that time where the tabernacle resides and he slaughters them all. 
men, women, children. The text mentions that he slaughters infants. This is horrific. Doeg's the only one who will do this. Carries out total destruction. Josephus, who is a Jewish scholar from the first century, uh, in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews, mentions this massacre, and he puts the grand total of those slaughtered by Doeg, so the priests, obviously, but then the men and women and children and infants, he puts the total at 385 that Doeg the Edomite killed that day. When people believe lies, it leads them to reject God. It leads them to reject justice. It it leads them to totally destroying innocent people while at the same time becoming totally tolerant of evil. This is Saul killing priests of Israel. This is devastation. And I don't think uh, it's too much of an exaggeration for us to read into this that it's not only devastation, this is actually demonic. Now let me work on this, okay? Do you remember what Jesus called the devil in John chapter eight? You may or may not have known this. We read this this morning if you're doing our one-year Bible. Actually, tomorrow will be this section, but I'll put this up on the screen. John eight forty four says this of the devil. You, have, you are of your father, the devil, And your will is to do your father's desires. He, so now speaking of the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when I say this is demonic, what's happening with Saul? One, one, uh, commentator I read this week called Saul at this point an antichrist. Not the antichrist, okay, but an antichrist. One who is so opposed to the good and right things of God that they have become anti those things. Three things about the devil from just this passage in John chapter eight. One, this shows that the devil's end goal is to spread death. He was a murderer from the beginning is what it says. Two, this also shows us that the devil is anti-truth. Right? It says that there is no truth in him, though he will very often use facts to mar the truth. But then third, this shows that the devil's method is primarily the spreading of lies. This is his primary strategy to get you and I to fall. He's a spinner of tales. He's a liar. From the beginning, he was a liar. Out of his own character, he's a liar. He is the father of lies. And that's what I think we see happening to Saul in this text. Believing lies has led to his isolation and now to great devastation. Two lies. But what about the truth? Remember the sermon, two lies and a truth. What about the truth? Well, let's finish this. Look at verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, 
the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Okay, so, so one of Ahimelech's sons, Abiathar escapes, makes his way to David, reports on what happened. And whereas at this point, Saul is alienating all of the priestly family from himself. You kill 85 priests, you've alienated the priesthood. Whereas Saul is alienating himself from the priests who, who would intercede on behalf of people, on behalf of the king to God, while he is cutting himself off from that, David gains the one remaining priest from the family of Eli. Some scholars think that this is the only priest left in all of Israel at this point. And now he's on David's team. Thus, the priesthood of, and godly counsel have moved from Saul to David. If you've been following with this, everything in this entire, the last five or six chapters has been about removing favor from Saul and placing it on David. Now he even has the priest on his side. Now, verse 22. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be, kept, be in safe keeping. <laughs> okay, a couple things. First, David is confronted with the consequences from his lie that he told last week. Remember last week, if you were here, I said, this lie will have dire consequences. Well, David realizes that it's his sin it's his lie to Ahimelech that led to this great tragedy. Yeah, he got food. He got a cool sword. Right? He thought he was protecting himself, and he maybe even thought that he was protecting Ahimelech with this lie. But now he realizes that his sin has affected other people, and that's how it always works. We convince ourselves that our sin is just going to be right here. And it's not going to have an effect on anybody else. You ever say this or hear this? Uh, I'm not hurting anybody. But I would say our sins always have negative effects, even in ways we have no ability to foresee. David never would have lied had he known, right? You ever say that? I never would have done that if I had known. But we never sin in isolation. It always affects others. So that's the first thing. David realizes that this sin, his, his sin, his lie has caused this. But then second, David takes the rap for it. He owns it. Even though Saul is the one who gave the order. And Doeg is the one who uh, used the sword. David takes the blame to the one priest who's left, to the one priest who could say, you're right. 
That is your fault. To the one person who could ultimately be upset with him, he says, that was me. He owns it. Now, why? Why does David own it? Because he believes the truth. See, guys, he could have made excuses at this point. I was on the run. That's, that's an excuse. I was on the run. I was desperate. Saul caused me to be in a position where I needed to lie. I had to lie because of Saul. Doeg was there in the corner just sulking around all weird like I had to. I had no other option. It's their fault. I'm the victim here. But no, David, David steps up and he, and he lives in the truth and the consequences of the truth. He walks in the truth and that means owning his part. But hear me, it also leads to something and that's where I wanna make my third and final point for our text this morning. Remember, believing lies leads to isolation and devastation, but believing truth leads to salvation. Salvation. Now follow with me on this one. Saul believes the lies and it leads him to disaster. Of course, the massacre of the innocents is a disaster. But as we're gonna see next week, a bigger disaster for Saul is that he has cut himself off from the means by which God gave, gave guidance to his people. He killed the priests. He killed the mediators. He killed the very ones who were gonna tell him, turn right or turn left. Go this way, go that way. Go into battle, don't go into battle. That's how the priests functioned with the king. But David believes the truth. He owns his part. He recognizes that in part, this is my fault. I'm the one who caused this. And what it does is it leads him to God. It leads him to God. Last chapter, he believed, David believed the lie that he needed to lie in order to protect himself or to protect Ahimelech or to receive God's provision, but he bought into the lie that he had to lie. But now when confronted with that lie, he doesn't double down like Saul. He doesn't double down when he's confronted. Ahimelech confronted Saul. He tried to convince him of the truth. But David, when confronted with his own sin, he believes the truth. He doesn't pass the buck. And because of that, Abiathar will be David's priest. We're going to see him for the rest of David's life and ministry. Abiathar will inquire of the Lord. And God will guide David to victory through this priest. Believing truth leads to salvation. So again, to quote Jesus from John chapter eight, the same exchange where Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. Right before that, a few verses earlier, in John eight, we find these words. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Famous words, powerful words. 
providentially, we read them in our one-year plan this morning, today. But what I think that that text means for us in context today is this. The way to battle the lies of the enemy is to believe the truth of Jesus. We are in a war. A war between lies and the truth. And the only way to win that war, the only way to battle the lies of the enemy, he's a liar from the beginning. He's the father of lies. And hear me, he's really good at it. You think you're shady? Anybody else feel like they had gotten to a point in their life where they were pretty good at lying? I'll admit that. Lying to others, lying to yourself. The way to battle the lies of the enemy is to believe the truth of Jesus. The truth is what leads to freedom. The truth is what leads to salvation. In Saul, we find a liar who keeps believing lies, but in David, we also find a liar. But when confronted with the truth, he repents and he turns, he owns it, and he finds salvation. Two lies and a truth. Now, to close up today, when most people think of truth, they think of a what. What is truth? That's what Pilate says. And, and what they're actually asking is, what's the fact? When saying what is truth, they really mean what's the facts? What's the indisputable evidential facts that I must believe? But in the Bible, Truth and facts are not synonymous. In the Bible, the truth isn't a what, right? The truth is a who. Another place, John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Jesus, we find truth personified, not mere facts, not mere data or analytics, but the interpretation of ultimate reality falls to the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the truth, not facts about him, but him. And believing the truth will lead to salvation. So I wanna ask this as we close. Do you believe in the truth? Do you believe in Jesus? And belief like this is not a one-time thing. Right? Like, yes, it is. There is a first time to believe in the truth. But, but as a journey for a Christian, believing in the truth is this ongoing, progressive, day in and day out battle against the lies of the enemy. So, so I'll ask again, do you believe in the truth? And then I also want to ask you the opposite side of that question. Are you believing some lies today? Lies about yourself. Lies about others. Lies about situations even lies that are birthed out of facts. And man, these things are so insidious. I just jotted a few down. Here's what they sound like. Here's the lies. This is what they sound like. 
I can't trust my husband. Listen, he'll cheat on me just like my dad cheated on my mom. Hear the lie and fact together in that? Good things never happen to me, so why should I even try? If I had that thing, then I would be happy. My best days are behind me. Stepping out in faith like this will end in disaster. If anyone actually knew me, they'd reject me. God would never want me. Not after how I've lived. Those are lies. But oh, how they sound like facts to our ears. And the only way to battle the lies of the enemy is to believe the words of truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says that the God of this world has blinded our minds. The God of this world is the devil. He has blinded our thinking, our minds. And I just wonder today that there might be some of us, some of you in this room, and you're believing lies, maybe even believing facts, data, but it's been spun in a way that's caused you to believe a lie. And I just wonder if, if today you might be honest with yourself. You don't need to be honest with anybody else, but with yourself that it's just not working. Believing lies causes isolation. It leads to devastation. So I wonder if you're tired enough of that. The call, like David in this passage, is to repent. It's not to make excuses. It's not to keep on believing lies. It's to say, you're right. It's acknowledging what we've done wrong, admitting it, and then saying, no more. No more. And so if we've been working through this text and you're starting to believe and realize that you've been hearing lies and you're believing lies and it's leading to isolation or maybe even your life is blown up, maybe even there's been disaster, devastation because of those lies, all you need to say today is no more. No more, Lord. I'm owning it and I'm repenting of it. So if you're in that place, I want to invite you to come back to the back of the room. After uh, we pray and we, we, we do this every week, we have prayer partners in the back that would just want to pray with you. So during our response time, if you're believing lies, if you're having trouble shedding some of this stuff, maybe if you're realizing, oh, I just want to believe the truth more and you need somebody to stand next to you, lay a hand on your shoulder and pray over you, pray for you. Man, let's do this together. Let's pray that we would believe the truth. We would believe the truth. We'll pray for you for that. So guys, let's cry out to God. Let's ask him for help to believe the truth over the lies and get after this. Let's war against the lies and pursue truth. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you today. What a good gift it is to, to read this text, a seemingly obscure text 
a text that we might very easily read right over and, and chalk up to just a mere recording of fact. And yet, Father, as we, as we dig a little deeper, we realize that there's truth to be had here. There's truth that can lead to life. There's lies that can lead to death. And, and God, we want to be believers of the truth. I pray for my friends this morning who, who feel themselves caught up in a vicious cycle of lies. Lies to cover lies, to cover more lies, to cover sin, to hide, to, to retreat, to play in the darkness rather than be exposed in the light. And God, I pray for courage. I pray for courage like David. Two men, two men who, who were liars. One continued down the path of believing the lies. The other repented, confessed, and turned to the truth. God, I pray that over us. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. You are the true preacher at Fathom. You preach to us, Holy Spirit. You convict us. You encourage us. You give us the courage we need. Father, we are in this war. Don't let us become numb to it. Don't let us believe the lie, but help us to lean more and more into the truth, into your Son. So, Father, we pray these things in his name and by the power of your Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen.